Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in fellowship. And the important principle here is the one we're studying this evening, and that's the principle of cleansing from sin uh, uh, experientially so that we can maintain fellowship or continue fellowship or resume fellowship, remembering that Psalm 66:18 says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear. And the point being that when we're out of fellowship, this does hinder our ongoing spiritual growth, and so we have to recover. And that's through the principle of confession, and the result of that is cleansing and forgiveness. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your word defines for us what the real issues in life are. Too often in our subjectivism, in our autonomy, our independence from you, man as a creature wishes to define the issues based on his own arrogance, but your word tells us what the real issues in life are, and the real issues in life relate to our uh, our purpose and the fact that we're created in your image, and you have a mission for the human race, and because of sin, there is a uh, problem that needs to be resolved, and that problem was resolved by Christ on the cross, yet every single person needs to apply that to their own life and put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And after that, the issue is ongoing spiritual growth, that we might glorify you and be a witness before both other human beings as well as the angels. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that you challenge us with these things. We could understand this important doctrine a little more clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to start in our passage briefly, Hebrews 9. We've been in Hebrews 9 for a while, it might seem, because we've looked at some uh, corollary and ancillary doctrines that help us to understand the significance of what is going on in this passage. And this will be important, especially as we go into the remainder of chapter 9 and on into chapter 10 and the warning passages 
that we'll get to in the in the uh, in the tenth chapter. Now, when we look at Hebrews nine fourteen and fifteen, actually, I'll start in thirteen because that's where the sentence begins, and that way we get the complete thought in thirteen and fourteen, where the writer of Hebrews says that if for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, all three of those terms relating to the Levitical sacrifices. For if those sacrifices, uh, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, I want you to note that a key word in that that we find in those two verses has to do with cleansing, sprinkling the unclean, uh, sanctifying, setting apart for the purifying. Again, we have the same idea of cleansing there, the purifying of the flesh in terms of ritual purification to uh, serve God uh, and worship him in the tabernacle and later temple worship. And then the application of that uh, in terms of the atonement of Christ, which was the antitype or that which those Old Testament sacrifices pointed, that Christ, how much more shall the blood of Christ, that is the death of Christ on the cross, his spiritual substitutionary atonement, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot because he was perfectly impeccable, no sin, Without spot to God, his death will cleanse our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. So the cleansing there is talking about positional cleansing. So we see a couple of different categories of cleansing in those verses. We see the ritual cleansing category that relates to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And then we see a cleansing that relates to positional cleansing in verse 14. Positional cleansing has to do with what happens to every believer at the instant of salvation, we are, the uh, work of Christ is applied to us so that we are positionally cleansed as part of our adoption into God's royal family. As part of the whole package of salvation, we we're, receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We are, we are then justified. We are forgiven positionally of our sins. That's the other side of the coin. Forgiveness is the other side of the coin to cleansing. And remember when we studied uh, forgiveness, we saw we introduced a, another category to that, and that is that there is a, a level of forgiveness that is true for every human being, the canceling of the debt which occurred at the cross. That's Colossians 2, 12 to 14. So that is a legal We'll identify that as a legal forgiveness. And then there's positional forgiveness, which occurs at the moment of salvation. And that is equivalent to positional cleansing. Then, And the purpose for that is to serve the living God. Now, that's important to understand because there's so much confusion that comes in that I've heard from different Christians over the years about uh, forgiveness and cleansing and confession of sin 
And I want to address some of this tonight as we get into the key, our key passage, which is going to be over in John 13. But the purpose for the positional cleansing is to serve Christ, to serve God. That is, our life is to be, the totality of our life is to be uh, worship. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. And he uses that term bodies because he's talking about it's, it's a metonymy of the part for the whole. He's talking about the whole person, that you present yourself a living sacrifice. And the idea there is, which is your reasonable service. And he uses the uh, Greek there for our, our service of worship. It's a different word from uh, bowing the knee, uh, obedience kind of worship, but the worship of service. So we are saved to serve. We're not saved to just sit and assimilate doctrine. There, that is to drive us to a higher purpose, and that is to serve the living God. And then he goes on in the next verse to saying, for this reason, for what reason? For this reason, that is, for this reason of our purpose of serving God, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called, that is, believers, may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So we've been looking at a, at a study, we've been going through a study on inheritance in the last several lessons, and the idea of inheritance is a possession. And what we've seen is that there are two categories of inheritance in, for, the, for the church age believer. There is one area of inheritance that is true for every single believer, and that is re, uh, described in Romans chapter 8 as being an heir of God. There are certain realities that are ours throughout eternity that are true for every single believer. We're going to have a resurrection body. We're going to have, uh, you know, we'll be in glory. There will no longer be a sin nature, and there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. The old things are passed away. Then there is a second category of inheritance, being a joint heir with Christ, and that relates to our future ruling and reigning responsibilities with him that are part also of this category of serving the living God, not just serving today, but serving in the future and what we're, the life we're living today prepares us for the future. Now, what is important about this is to understand why, how cleansing fits within this whole scenario, and that's related to confession of sin. Now, some years ago, there developed some confusion over the whole doctrine of confession of sin in 1 John 1, 9. There's also, within a number of uh, teaching, you know, doctrinal churches folks were associated with, and uh, part of this goes back to a broader trend within evangelicalism that you have, uh, I know one particular individual, I won't name him, but he's on the radio, and it seems like his whole reason for existence and teaching on the radio is to tell people they don't need to confess their sins. seems like every time you hear him, he's got a book out on the subject, and he just thinks the worst form of legalism is to tell people that they need to confess their sins. And their argument is from, that he, one of his arguments is from 1 John 1, 7, that the blood of Christ continually cleanses 
from all sin. Of course, my retort to that is if 1 John 1, 7 means you don't need to confess your sin, why does John tell you two verses later that you need to confess your sins to be cleansed? I mean, it just, it just doesn't make sense. But people, one argument that I've heard, one objection that I've heard from people is if confession is so important, why is it only mentioned one time in the New Testament? And the idea of confession using that one word is only mentioned one time in 1 John 1, 9, but that's not the only time confession is mentioned. But the significance is not in the confession. The significance is in the cleansing. And when you take your focus off in 1 John 1, 9, off of the... Uh, the, the, the verb to confess, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you put your focus on that forgiving and cleansing aspect, and then you take it and plug that idea within the whole flow of biblical teaching, then you realize where, where the pattern is. And that confession of sin fits within that. You have examples in the Old Testament confession of sin. You have examples uh, in the Gospels. You have examples in the epistles of confession of sin. And throughout all of this runs this doctrinal thread of cleansing. And that really is the vital thing, is that when a believer sins, he becomes experientially unclean. And there has to be a cleansing that takes place for restoration to fellowship and the resumption of going forward in the Christian life. And that connects to several other, uh, other doctrines. So all of this is connected, we see, even in the context of, of Hebrews 9 with the use of these words that emphasize the importance of cleansing and perfection. Now let's go to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 when Jesus teaches his disciples about this, and he does this by means of an, of an object lesson. He doesn't come right out and teach them in an overt, abstract doctrine of confession and cleansing. He does it by illustrating it through something that he does. Now, what happens a lot of times is... You'll, you'll hear people, and I've heard an, even seminary professors talk about the, this passage as teaching being a servant. That is not what this passage is talking about. Jesus may exhibit something about being a servant when he washes the disciples' feet, but that's not the doctrine that is being taught here. What we have to understand as we approach John 13 is where this fits within the uh, panorama and the scope of Jesus' life and ministry and where this fits within the Gospel of John. And that's not that hard to do. John writes his Gospel and says, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the, Mes the Messiah. And that by, uh, These are written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. The these that he's talking about in John 20 relates to the plural noun in the previous verse where, it, where the reference is to uh, Thomas's doubting the resurrection. And Jesus appears in his resurrection body and says to, to uh, Thomas, says, well, put your hands in the, in the nail prints and in, the, in my side, and you'll see that this is me, and it's physical. And, of course, Thomas just bows down to him and worships him. And John comments in John uh, 
20, verse 30, that this is one of many, the resurrection was one of many other signs that Jesus provided. But these, that is, these signs, those signs that John writes about, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, there are seven signs that are given in the, in the book of John. They go up through chapter 12, and then there's a interlude, and then you have the crucifixion and the seventh sign, which is resurrection. So something different is happening in John 13 through John 17. And what is happening here is Jesus is having his final his final meeting with his disciples, his final instruction session with his disciples before he goes to the cross, and he begins to teach them about church age doctrine. Now, he's going to tell them a lot more after the resurrection, but he gives them a tremendous amount of information here, and this is all just the night before he goes to the cross. It begins with the Passover uh, supper, which would be at sundown. On This would be on the night before he goes to the cross, and then they have the Passover meal, which would take two or three hours, and then they're going to walk to Gethsemane, which would take them about it's not that far, but if they're, he's talking and teaching along the way, it might have taken an hour to two hours to walk to Gethsemane. And then there are the events at Gethsemane where he goes off with John and Peter and prays, and then eventually he is, he's arrested early the next morning. So that's the context. And so we, understand, we must understand John 13 as it fits within the context of John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And there's a progression to his teaching here, and that's why usually this whole section is just referred to as the upper room discourse, even though he's only in the upper room in John 13. At the end of John 13, they, or at least by the end of John 14, at the end of John 14, they leave. So it begins in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour uh, hour had come, put the verse up, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart. And the Greek word here is katabino, and the literal meaning of katabino is to pass over or to go over or to leave. So it's sort of a play on words by uh, John here that because it was the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should pass over from this world to the uh, Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the word love that appears here, uh, agapao, is a key word in this whole section. And if you just skip down in the chapter, down to verse 34, Jesus says to the disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the mention of love in verse 1 and the command to love one another in verses 34 and 35, frames the teaching episode that occurs during the uh, Passover or at, at, during the Passover meal or at the end of it. 
Verse 2, we read during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So here the base notes begin to rumble a little bit and set the foreshadowing of the betrayal of Judas. And this is important to understand that John front loads the teaching session by giving us a clue about the one who will betray Jesus as Judas, because that's going to come up in the middle of the object lesson. So we know who that's going to be, that there's one person there that's different from the others. We're going to put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing, probably a causal participle there, because he knew that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. So what is in the background of, of his object lesson is his understanding of his mission, what's about to happen, and his ascension. So he's going to prepare his disciples with and start preparing them with Church age spiritual life doctrine. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself, he wrapped it around his waist, and after that he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with a towel with which he was girded. Now, what's interesting here is the verb that is used for washing. It's related to the word that's used for basin, and it indicates a uh, just a partial washing. I'm going to skip down to a later verse here just to show you the Greek word. This nipto in the red box is the Greek word that is used almost all the way through here for washing, with one exception, and that is um, uh, in the earlier part of verse 10. So this is the word that's used here is nipto, and it has the meaning of a partial washing. It's the word you would use if you're going to get up and you're going to wash your face, you're going to wash your hands, you're going to wash your feet, uh, as opposed to taking a, an entire bath and washing all over. So, and it's the uh, a noun form of that word that is translated into uh, the word basin. So the concept of a basin is something you would use uh, to just partially wash, just in, as opposed to a bathtub or something lar- larger that you would be able to get in and have a complete washing in. So Jesus pours the water into the basin, and he begins to nipto, to wash, partially wash, uh, the disciples' feet and to wipe them off with the towel with which he's girded. So we see the disciples, they finish the uh, Passover meal, and they are lying there. This isn't referred to in any of the other uh, other Gospels. It's before they get up and leave and sing a hymn, which is you have a, a sort of a, a, a bridged version in the other Gospels. And he washes their feet, goes from one to the other. And he's going. it looks like he comes to Peter near the end. And Peter is watching all of this and, 
To him, his arrogance gets in the way because he can't believe that the one who he has recognized as the Christ, the Son of the living God, is getting down on his knees and washing the feet of each of these disciples like a common servant. And this would normally take place uh, when when, uh, people would come into the home, into a Jewish home at Passover, a servant would wash their feet initially as they came into the house because they would recline during the meal so that uh, you would be, uh, your head might not be too far from your neighbor's feet. And so there was this, uh, there w- they would be clean feet. So Jesus is washing them again as part of this object lesson. And in verse 6 we read, So he came to Simon Peter. And Peter objects to this. He's been watching this for a while, and the more he sees this, the more irritated he's getting that the Lord is doing this. And so he's built up a little arrogant head of steam, and he says, Lord, basically, what do you mean you're going to wash my feet? This isn't your place to do this. And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do... You do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Now, that is a very important verse to, uh, to, to pay attention to for the interpretation of this episode. Because on the surface, it looks like Jesus is teaching something about being a servant and loving someone in, a, in that relatively superficial sense. But that's the obvious, that's just sort of a surface observation. What Jesus says is, right now, as you are looking at me do this, you don't really understand what this is portraying. This is teaching something. But you don't understand it at all now, but you will in the future. Then we get into John 14, he tells the disciples he's going to send them the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will remind them of all things and teach them all things, and they will re, uh, all things will be brought to their memory so that they can, those who are going to write scriptures are going to write them, and others will, use, will remember these things to teach them. So that's what Jesus is alluding to. And several times in John 14, John 15, 16, there is this allusion to the fact that, that the things that they are learning now, they will be teaching later on. So he says to Peter, you don't, you don't understand the principles I'm teaching right now, but you will later on. Now, when we get subsequent revelation in the epistles, then we can go back and examine what's going on here. We see what this is teaching. And this is a great physical illustration and story to use when you're teaching confession of sin in, in prep school because this is very visual, very physical. It's, it's a very concrete representation of the abstract reality of confession and the importance of confession. So Jesus, uh, Peter then says, no, never. And he says this in the most, uh, in, in the strongest way possible. He uses a double negative in the Greek plus a subjunctive voice in the, uh, or uh, in the subjunctive voice in the, in the uh, verb plus the word forever. He says forever. You know, we translate it never, which is good English. But literally he says forever. 
you shall not never wash my feet. Because in English, the double negative becomes a positive, but in Greek, the double negative just reinforces itself. So he's making an extremely strong statement here that you are absolutely never, ever, ever going to wash my feet. Now, all through this segment, they've been using this word nipto for partial washing. And then Jesus answered him and says, if I do not wash you, and it is a third-class condition, meaning maybe it will, maybe you won't. There's three different ways, or actually four different ways, but in the New Testament you have primarily three ways to express a condition. A first-class condition is the if clause, where the if clause has the idea of if, and we're going to assume the condition is true. This would be, this is the way it's used in uh, Luke chapter uh, 4 when Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He's tempted by the devil and says, if you are the Son of God, first class condition, if and you are the Son of God. A second class condition is just the reverse, where the if clause, the condition, is assumed to be not true. But a third-class condition is assumed to be true or not true. It could go either way. It's more likely to be true, but this is the way we often express a condition. If we wake up in the morning and we say, if it doesn't rain this afternoon, then I'll be able to work in the yard. I'll be able to work in the garden. We don't know if it will rain or not. We're just expressing a condition. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. That's how Jesus expresses this. Because the washing here is not automatic. The washing is dependent upon volition. Peter was saying, no, you're not going to wash me. And, and Jesus is saying, okay, you have that option, and you can uh, not participate in this, in what I'm teaching here. But there are going to be consequences. So Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no Part with me. And the key word there is that word part, which is the Greek word meros. Now, we began to look at this word meros last time in our study on inheritance because this is a technical word used in legal literature, especially in wills, that relates to the, describing the share or the portion that is given to the heir. And it's the same word that's used in... Um, in Luke, in the, in the uh, parable of the uh, prodigal son, where the prodigal son goes to his father and says, give me my portion, the portion of my inheritance. So in, in, when we read this in English and we read that word part, we often read that as if what it is saying is uh, you have no role, you won't really have a place, you won't be able to participate with me if I do not wash you. That's not what it's saying. It's more profound than that. Jesus is saying, you won't have an inheritance with me. Now, plug that into what we saw with the joint heirship of Christ in Romans chapter 8, that we can be joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. We saw that that word suffering is the same word that's used over in Hebrews chapter chapter 2, to relate to the fact that God the Father 
and the incarnation took the son through various tests so that he could learn obedience through the things that he suffered. And we're not talking about simply going through adversity, but every situation we go through in life is some sort of a test that gives us the option to either obey God uh, and do it God's way or do, do it the way we want to do it. And so the suffering there has to do with living in a fallen world and going through the various tests as we grow to maturity. And Jesus went through that same process. So it's not talking about suffering as going through some major sufferings in life. It's talking about that process of growth through handling the tests of growth on the basis of Bible doctrine. So Jesus qualifies for his inheritance by going through these this suffering. We do the same thing, and it, it, he sets the pattern. So what Jesus is telling Peter is, if you want to qualify for an inheritance with me through the things that you suffer as I have suffered, then you ha- there has to be a cleansing process because you're going to fail at times. And there has to be a restoration. There has to be some way to recover from failure, some way to recover from sin. Jesus didn't have to use that because Jesus never failed. Not Jesus never fails. That's a hymn. Jesus never failed. He never sinned. He was impeccable. He was always obedient. So Jesus' heirship is unique, but we become joint heirs if we suffer with him, and when we fail in that process, God has provided a grace basis for recovery. And that is what he is illustrating here in terms of the washing. So the washing is critical for inheritance. Now what this means is, what he's illustrating, to make sure you get the point, is he's illustrating confession of sin. Because confession of sin is what gets you experiential cleansing. And if you don't confess your sin, you won't have the experiential cleansing. You'll stay out of fellowship. You'll continue to operate on the sin nature, continue to produce just human good. You're not going forward in your Christian life. All you're doing is producing a lot of morality that might look good because you're going to church, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're witnessing, you're doing all of these Uh, good things, you're being obedient morally to the Scripture, but it has no spiritual value because you're still out of fellowship. Confession is what restores you to fellowship, and it's only those things that we produce in fellowship when the Holy Spirit is working in and through us, which is what uh, Paul refers to in Galatians 5.17, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he goes on a few verses later to describe the fruit of the Spirit. And it is that fruit of the Spirit, the production of the Spirit, in terms of our, our maturity and in terms of our character, that becomes the basis for the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not done on our own effort. And see, this is the difference between uh, the way we understand sanctification or experience sanctification, spiritual growth, and the way it's presented in a lot of forms of Christianity and Christian theology. You are, if you go to certain churches, many churches, 
you're told to pray and you're told to be involved in Christian service and you're told to memorize Bible verses and to read your Bible and to witness and to come to church and to worship and all of these things, but you're never told how to do that in a way that really pleases God, where it's a production of the Spirit and not a production of your own flesh and your own natural ability. And a Christian who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, justified, adopted into God's royal family, can do all of those things and be out of fellowship, where he's doing it in his own power and not in the power of the Spirit. And it is the power of the Spirit that energizes the Christian life. So we have these various commands in the New Testament to walk by means of the Spirit. And it is the Spirit that uh, produces this in us. We're to be filled by means of the Spirit. And so that the Spirit becomes the unique empowerment for the, for the Christian life. Now, that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples, is that if you get out of fellowship, you stop walking by the Spirit. Galatians 5.17 says, walk by means of the Spirit, and use that same structure, grammatical structure Peter just used, and it will be impossible for you to carry out the lust of the flesh. So he sets up two, two mutually exclusive realities. At any moment in your life, you're either walking by the Spirit or you're walking by the flesh. Jesus uses a similar setup in the Upper Room Discourse in John 15 when he talks about the true vine. He talks about abiding in him. And the concept of abiding is related to fellowship and being and, and staying in fellowship. The word there translated abide is the word that means to stay or to remain. So in John 15, verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. See, that's what I was just talking about. You can't bear divine good, gold, silver, and precious stones fruit of yourself out from the power of your sin nature. You can't just go out and do it by being moral. And that's what, how Christianity is wrongly taught from many pulpits, is that you just need to go do these 10 things or 20 things or the disciplines of the Christian life, whatever they are, and you're never taught about the power of God the Holy Spirit that makes a difference between praying by means of the Spirit where it has real value, spiritual value, and praying that's just in the power of the flesh that doesn't go anywhere and doesn't have any, any eternal value whatsoever because it is fruit that is produced of itself. Only that which comes when we are abiding in Christ. So Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, uh, abiding in him is not talking about salvation. Some people think that this is related to a position in Christ. He's talking to disciples who are already saved, and he's telling them, you need to abide in me. And so he's talking about that ongoing, uh, ongoing experiential fellowship. And he then goes on to say in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, 
For without me, you can do nothing. See, the spiritual life is not Operation Bootstrap, which is how it's normally presented to people. You'll go out there and pull yourself up morally by your own bootstraps. You can do it. You, you've been immoral, and you've been a liar, and you've been a thief, and you've been a drug addict, and all of these other things that have characterized your life because of your sin nature. You've been arrogant, malicious, slanderous, a gossip. But now, now you're a believer, so just quit doing these things. And so the Christian life is taught is just going out and exercising discipline and stopping the bad things, the immoral things, the wrong things I've been doing, and replacing them with good things. But that's no different from, from any other religious system. It's not putting the focus on the power of God the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ, which is the focal point of new, and the uniqueness of New Testament spirituality. Verse 5 says, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, there are consequences. He's cast out as a branch and is withered. This is not talking about loss of salvation. It's talking about using the analogy of the pruning process for a grapevine. It's talking about the fact that, that uh, as a as a young vine grows, in the spring of the year, the vine dresser will come along, and he will see the little sucker vines that are growing off of there that dis- that distract, the, take the energy away from the main uh, fruit production, and he will uh, cut off those. It's it's a picture of divine discipline in the life of the believer, and as he cuts those prunes, the plants then the energy is then able to uh, go into the fruit production. So verse 6, when he talks about the if someone doesn't abide in me, he's cast out as a branch. It's talking about the divine discipline there. And uh, then it's, just, it's not talking about hellfire when it says gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. That's just what, the, what they would do in the uh, process of pruning the vines it would then take all of these branches that had been clipped off and they would gather them up and they would uh, burn them and destroy them. Verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, notice the connection there with God's word. It's not just the spirit of God, it is the word of God. If you abide in me in fellowship, my words abide in you, that is you're operating on the word of God within the framework of fellowship. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, that is, by this process of abiding in me, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. Now, in in Galatians chapter 5, verse verse, um, 15, the command is love one another. Are you to love your neighbor as yourself? 517, he talks about that this is done through walking by means of the Spirit. And then in uh, 521, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first thing he mentions because that's what the context is. Well, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. What's Jesus talking about in John 15? If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. What is the characteristic of the disciple? Well, let's look at the context. 
Back in verse chapter 13, he had told them, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That takes us back to the application of the principle of the foot washing. The foot washing has to do with forgiveness. Now let's go on to the next, uh, uh, to the next verse in verse 9, John 13, 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, oh, hey, Peter just gets carried away. He says, oh, it's so important for you to wash my feet. Wash my whole body. He's still thinking literally. He's not thinking in terms of the spiritual lesson that Jesus is teaching because he can't understand it yet, which is what Jesus just told him. So then Jesus said to him, he who has bathed, and here he uses the Greek word luo, L-O-U-O, meaning to wash fully or to bathe. Now, these two words are used and distinguished in the Greek translation of the Old, Old Testament. And if you uh, look back in Exodus, and we've gone through this, this before several times, but it's important to pull all this together and remind everybody of the significance of this. If you go back to Exodus chapter 40, and you look at the, uh, uh, the, the tabernacle is established, and it talks about the um, anointing of Moses and his sons. When they are initially anointed into the ministry as priests, they are washed. Now, the Hebrew only has one word for washing. And that one word for washing does double duty. When the high priest was initially inaugurated, he was washed from head to toe. When the rabbis translated that into Greek, they used the word luo, full bath. But then when they talk about the daily operation of the priest in the temple... Verse uh, In Exodus chapter 40, verse 30, he set the laver between the tabernacle and the altar and put water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. The word washing there is nipto. And Jesus is picking up on that illustration from the, from the service of the priest to show that if you're going to serve God, what's Hebrews 9, 15, 14 talking about? that we are cleansed to serve the living God, that if you're going to serve him, there has to be a positional cleansing, luo, the full bath that takes place when we are positionally forgiven at salvation. And then there has to be this ongoing experiential cleansing that's depicted in the ritual of Israel by the washing of the hands and the washing of his feet. Now, this is what Jesus is saying here. He who has bathed, that is, the one who is already a perfect tense there. It's completed. And that's, that is describing the person who's already saved, positionally cleansed. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. We might add the word again. And you are clean. And here he shifts 
in the Greek to a second person plural. You all are clean. He's addressing these, the group of disciples. You all are clean. Katharos. All of you except one, but not all of you, he says at the end. So by that statement, what he means is that all the disciples, 11 of the 12, are saved. They are positionally clean, including Peter. But not all of them are positionally clean because one of them, Judas Iscariot, is an unbeliever, and he is about to be uh, indwelt, possessed by, by Satan. So, so Jesus is saying, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. That's that restoration to fellowship. It's pictured there. And you are clean, but not all of you. And so we see the interplay between those two, uh, those two words. Now, as I pointed out, Exodus chapter 30, 18 to 20, Exodus 40, 12, these are the passages that talk about the, the use of these two words in the Greek Septuagint in the Old Testament. Now, the next verse, verse 11 in John 13 says, For he knew the one who was betraying him. The four there is an explanation. When he says, but not all of you are clean, verse 11 is really a, a parenthesis to explain that statement, for not all of you are clean. For he knew that the, the one who was betraying him For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So twice John makes this statement about not all of you are clean, and he makes it clear that this is talking about Judas Iscariot. He's the one that's not saved. So the idea of cleansing here is used as a positional cleansing is equated to being saved. And the partial washing, the nipto, is related to a partial cleansing or partial washing as portrayed in the, in the Old, Testament, uh, Old Testament ritual. Now, what this is teaching is the whole principle of confession of sin. If we confess our sins, not for salvation, but after we're saved, we continue to commit sin. This is one of those things that has plagued Christianity since the beginning of the church. What do you do with sins after salvation? They got really screwed up in the early church in the, by the middle of the second century where they some believed that baptism physically washed the sins away. And so by the time of uh, the emperor Constantine the Great, by the time he was saved, it was sort of the common misconception and wrong belief that Sins committed after you were baptized couldn't be forgiven and you might lose your salvation or, or suffer some other penalty. And so Constantine, not unlike many others at that time, wanted to wait until just before he died, before he got baptized, because he wanted to make sure that there weren't going to be too many post-baptismal sins so that he wouldn't have to suffer too much for those sins that came after he was baptized. And so this, this is a, what happens when you take a woodenly literal meaning to things, which does not, is not what we mean by a plain literal interpretation. And you, so you can get into problems by taking something in a woodenly literal way as much as you get into problems by taking it in a spiritualized or allegorical way.
Now, it's clear that from what Jesus said in verse 7, what I am doing you don't understand now, but you will know after this, that he's giving them an object lesson of a very important truth. And that object lesson has to do with the necessity of partial cleansing. Now, we have other allusions to this in the New Testament. For example, in James, James chapter um, James chapter 4. Uh, James chapter 4, he is dealing with um, those who have gotten involved with mental attitude sins. And so he confronts them with all of this division and strife within the congregation. In the first part of chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, he deals with this and points out that this is the result of friendship with the world and arrogance. And then in verse 7, he begins the solution. He says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee to you. See, the starting point when before you confess your sin is there's a recognition that you need to get right with God again, which is basically what he's talking about here. You need to submit to get back under God's authority. So then in verse 8, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, how do you do that? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the same principle, same verbiage, cleanse and purify. There needs to be this post-salvation purification, and that is what restores you to fellowship, uh, fellowship with God. And this is what is meant by humbling yourself under the hand of God. Now, this whole idea of inheritance fits into this because as a believer, you can do good things, moral things, you can do spiritually obedient things all in the power of the flesh. You can read your Bible, you can memorize scripture, you can go to Bible class, you can witness, you can do all these things in the power of the flesh. But it has no eternal value because it's something you are doing. And as Jesus said in John 15, you, the, 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 the branch cannot produce fruit of its own. It has to abide in him. And so when we're out of fellowship, when we quit walking by the Spirit and start walking according to the flesh, how do we recover? There has to be a way of going from not abiding to abiding and from not walking by the Spirit to walking by the Spirit and there has to be something that deals with the sin that occurs that got us out of fellowship. And that's the principle of cleansing, of confession of sin, which means to admit or only to admit or to acknowledge our sin to God. It doesn't have an emotional context. Now, we may be emotional. We may be upset. Uh, we may not. We may... Uh, it may be some sin that we have committed 15,000 times, and so that deep remorse and regret we may have felt at one time has grown a little cold because after 15,000 uh, times of confessing it, we just can't generate the same level of remorse and regret that we did when we were younger. But when you're standing in a court of law and you've been accused of some crime, whether it's a misdemeanor like a traffic violation or something more more egregious or felonious, and you're asked if you, how do you plead, and you say guilty or not guilty, that's, if you say guilty, that is your admission that you have done it. 
And and emotion may or may not be there. I know if you're, the illustration I always use is standing before a traffic judge in traffic court, and I have never really been remorseful over speeding or a moving violation of that nature. I've been remorseful that I've been caught, but I haven't been remorseful that I have gotten a ticket. And so the remorse has nothing to do with the legitimacy of the confession. The trouble is, the point in the Christian life isn't to confess your sin. And so many people have got this misperception that somehow the key to spiritual growth is confession of sin. The key to spiritual growth is abiding in Christ. The key to spiritual growth is walking by the Spirit, not confession. Confession just gets you back to abiding, to a place where you can abide. Confession only gets you back to a position of walking by the Spirit. It would be as if you were to say that the only place that I can read my Bible is in my house. When you're out of fellowship, you're outside the house. When you confess your sin, you're back inside the house. But just being back inside your house doesn't mean you're reading your Bible. Reading your Bible would relate to abiding. It's staying there. And a lot of Christians are just walking in and out of the front door all the time. And where the Christian life occurs, where Christian growth occurs, where maturity happens, where fruit production takes place, is by staying inside the house. There's no spiritual growth outside the house. And there's no spiritual growth in just coming in and out the front door. To use another illustration, which based on the biblical analogy of walking in the light, uh, you neither walk in the light or walk in darkness, and a lot of Christians are just flipping the light switch up and down all the time. And the point of the Scripture is to keep the lights on, to walk in the light, to abide in Christ, and walk by means of the Spirit. That's where the real spiritual life happens. Now, two things tend to, tend to take place with a person. One, you have a licentious person who doesn't want to admit that gossip is really a, uh, a problem for him, and uh, even if it is, he gets a lot of joy out of gossip. Uh, gossip is uh, the drug of choice of a lot of uh, a lot of certain kinds of people. Uh, they would rather gossip about people, makes them feel good, and that's their drug rather than something else. And so they gossip all the time. And they don't really, oh, well, Jesus paid for that on the cross. I'll just confess it later. Now, that's the kind of person who's just flipping the light switch all the time. Then there's another kind of person who maybe their area of weakness is worry. And they know that their job might be on the line, and they've already seen their retirement plan, just their 401K just went to almost nothing, and they might lose their job, the companies. And so they're, they're, they're worried. And that's the area of weakness of their sin nature. And so one minute they're worrying and they say, you know, I have to trust God. I have to trust God. So, Lord, I, I've just been worrying. I want to confess that sin back in fellowship. Two seconds later, they're worrying again. Now, mechanically, they're not any different from the gossip who's just being licentious and flipping the light switch. But the difference is that the licentious person just keeps switch, switching the light switch and never realizes that the purpose is to leave the light switch on for a while. Whereas the person that keeps getting overwhelmed uh, are choosing to are, are are tempted with their with their um, the sin of worry. They they're fighting it, and maybe after some time, 
they finally reach a point where, okay, I'm going to put it in the Lord's hands and leave it there. And five or six seconds goes by before they actually get their eyes back on the worry, and then the light switch goes off again. But there's progress, and it may take time. It may take weeks, months, years, but it demands the discipline of learning how to recover and how to walk by means of the Spirit because it is this, that, that walk by means of the Spirit that provides the real ongoing uh, production that's the basis for inheritance. Now, let me tie this together real quickly as we close. Last time I did look at Revelation 20 and 21, so I want to connect this back. In Revelation 2.11, there's a warning to the second church, the church of Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a warning to behave a certain way. He says, he who overcomes, that's the believer who is growing, who overcomes in the area of spiritual growth. The, the, over, the one who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, it's very clear from other passages, for example, in Revelation chapter 20, that the second death is the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 14, that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Well, wait a minute. You go back to Revelation 2.11. So I thought because I'm a believer, I can't be hurt by the second death anyway. I'm not going to end up in the lake of fire. Well, you're not. As a believer, you will not end up in the lake of fire. You have eternal security. But you can be hurt by the second death. And that's what we looked at last time in Revelation uh, 21, uh, verses 7 and 8. And verse 7 sets the context that those who are obedient or inherit, but in contrast, the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part. There's that word again, meros. They shall have their meros, their inheritance in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death their inheritance gets flushed into the lake of fire instead of being distributed at the judgment seat of Christ. And so when we put all of this together, we realize that confession of sin is not just something we do before Bible class. That is, when we start before Bible class, when we start every Bible class with the exercise of confession of sin, that is merely a pedagogical tool to reinforce for everyone in the congregation the importance of confession of sin. But it, it's not just some mechanistic thing. Now, it may appear mechanistic, and certainly when you're, if you are a football player and you go to spring training and you're working on the mechanics of tackling or the mechanics of throwing or the mechanics of running and dodging, uh, it may seem very uh, artificial and mechanical at the time. If you go to the practice uh, uh, at dance school where uh, the those who are dancing in the ballet are practicing and they're working on the intricate movements that they're going to make and they break it down into the different mechanics, it seems artificial, mechanical, and to them it may even be awkward at first. But once they master it, it develops something of skill and beauty that flows. And so as a pastor, uh, I enforce, reinforce the pedagogical, uh, pe I reinforce pedagogically the importance of confession with each Bible class. But it is not just a, a mechanical thing that you run through. It is a vital part of your relationship to God 
where you are admitting to God where you have sinned, recognizing those sins were paid for by Christ on the cross, so that now I am cleansed again, I recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, so that I can move forward and grow, because without that, we can't serve God. Just as the Old Testament priests couldn't serve, Without that experiential cleansing, we can't serve, and we are saved to serve. We are not saved to confess sin. We're saved to serve. So the issue is growing, abiding, walking, not just confessing. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of how these doctrines related to cleansing and walking and abiding and confession all fit together and how they they have such a uh, wonderful way in working in our lives to give us a grace basis for recovery from uh, from sin and failure in our lives that we can keep going forward and uh, keep that forward momentum, continue to walk by the Spirit, that we may uh, be matured by the Spirit, that we may serve you both now and looking forward to serving you in the future in the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign and on into eternity. We pray that you would just help us to implement these principles in our lives and that our thinking might be transformed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.